Misread is a book podcast where we review books, discuss topics, and provide social commentary on what's happening today. with us a Toronto-born author that has made major moves in the literary world. She has written high honorary novels, her plays have been internationally produced, and she's written columns and articles that have been published in the Globe and Mail, the Paris Review, and many others. Her debut novel, Stunt, was Quill and Choir's Book of the Year, and it was also nominated for the Amazon First Novel Award. Her second novel, Heartbreaker, released August of this year, 2018, is creating quite the stir and has been listed Publisher Weekly's Writers to Watch Fall 2018. Alongside her decorated writing resume, our guest has starred in horror films, has lectured as a professor at the University of Toronto, served as a cook in lumber camps, and is currently a co-designer for the trendy clothing line Horses Atelier. A jack-of-all-trades would be an understatement. Please welcome with me Claudia Day. Quite the introduction. (laughs) Wow. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Claudia. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's nice to have you here. Um, I want to get right into it. So I understand that you're born and raised in, in Toronto, but you attended McGill University in Montreal. So what was it like living in Montreal and how would you compare life in Montreal to life in Toronto? Mm, well, I moved to Montreal when I was 17. I would say... The first word that comes to mind is that Montreal was romantic. Mm. Um, It was cold. It was the kind of cold that gets into your bones. But the moment the sun would start to shine, people would sit outside and drink alcohol, not in any kind of like... um, you know, like excessive way. Somehow it all just fit. Like it was so luscious and sultry and indulgent, but somehow elegant at the same time. I agree with everything you're saying. Yeah, I I loved it so much. Everybody smoked. You could smoke in class. You could smoke in hallways. And everybody looked at each other. That was another big thing. You really, as you passed someone on the street, looked each other in the eye. Was, there's a lot more human contact again mm. in like an elegant in an elegant way well and also you can really be a freelancer there there isn't that same kind of striving and pressure to have like a really cleanly identifiable job mm. like a weirdo who wakes up at two o'clock in the afternoon walks up the mountain and then starts work yeah <laughs> yeah that's a totally legitimate way to live there yeah. <laughs> so you have a very decorated resume overall, which we will be getting into. But for now, I want to focus on the writing. Can you tell us how you transitioned from writing plays to columns in the Globe and Mail to debuting your first novel, Stunt, in 2008? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that I'm 
restless, and I think that every story requires a different form. Mm-hmm. So my first real form, even before I was writing plays, I was writing a lot of poetry, and before that, when I was a little kid, I was writing little stories and illustrating them and stapling together, like kind of in a precursor to zines, or like my first version of a zine. You know, when I was, like, six, seven, eight, Mm -hmm. Um, and then there was, like, the black trench coat poetry phase, and then writing plays at the theater school, I think because I'm such a sonic thinker, which you can see in Heartbreaker, I'm a very, like, voice-driven writer. Yes. Um, And even my columns are voice-driven in that they're a conversation. Someone... You know, the columns were generally advice columns. So someone comes to you with a dilemma or something that they can't settle, which is a lot like the beginning of a novel, how a novel will present itself to a writer. Mm -hmm. And then my job was to answer them, answer them as, as best as I possibly could. You know, and again, that's a lot like writing a book. Right. Yeah. And how does the writing style change between playwrights and novels? Um, Well, they're different forms. Um, With the novels, you know, they're a lot more about the, just the beauty and the minimalism of the sentences. Both are about the propulsion of the story, about momentum, but in the plays, I resolved much more through dialogue and through action like stage directions whereas in the novel I can do that all in that you know in in the sentences so just you know the way that it appears is different Mm -hmm. but again I'm like they're not for me there isn't a huge huge distance between the two forms you know I still I think live somewhere kind of between the two or at the very least the accumulation of the two helps me um you know, I couldn't have written Heartbreaker had I not been a playwright first, for sure. Interesting. In the article with Quill and Choir, you mentioned that in addition to the research you did to visualize the territory for the book Heartbreaker, you were also inspired when you worked as a cook in the lumber camps across Canada. And that kind of gave you a sense of what it would be like to disappear. So can you just elaborate and explain a bit more about that feeling of disappearing and how it shapes and influenced the atmosphere of this novel? Yeah, I can. Um, so this would have been the 90s, so this is pre-cell phone, which I know is sort of unimaginable. <laughs> <laughs> so no, um, you know, no kind of locational technology, no being in touch with everyone at all times. Mm-hmm no kind of like selfie awareness not self-awareness selfie awareness (laughs) um so we would get into our pickup trucks and our vans and we would follow like hand-drawn maps into the bush sometimes two hours into the bush so we were you know hundreds of miles from the nearest small town um and we would set up camp out in the wild and we would have a mess tent and we would live in tents and vans and we'd go up there toward like middle end of May so sometimes there was still snow on the ground. This is near Timmins, Capuscasing, Hearst, Ontario and then I was also in Alberta and BC. Mm-hmm. So I planted for two years and then for six years I cooked wow. and when you're cooking the camp leaves for the day. 
So you feed everyone breakfast when it's still dark outside, and then, you know, 60 people leave, and you're, either you're working with someone, or if it's a smaller camp, you're on your own, which I did many times. Everyone leaves, and there you are, in this little trailer with your black coffee and your apron on, and you're working, 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 and then you open the door, and it's really just you and the woods, and it felt like being on the moon, Mm. because I was so apart from everything that I knew, from my home, from my city, from my mother, from my books, from my notebooks, from every bit of comfort that I had in my life, you know, Mm -hmm. and of course you create Mm -hmm. new comfort, but I was just so separate, so isolated. So I think that experience really lodged itself in me. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then it appears like 20 years later in a novel. Yeah. So it's something that really stuck with you. It really did. It really did. And it, it, you know, it, it, played a part in my first um, play, which is called Beaver, played a part in my third play, which is called Trout Stanley, and even entered a little bit my first novel, which was called Stunt, Yeah, you know, but here in the creation of the territory, even the kind of, like the, the details of the territory, the big trucks and the dogs and the nicknames and the bonfires <laughs> yeah. and the kind of DIY fashion of the teenagers, like that is a tree planting camp. Yeah, you know and the love affairs and the alliances and the resentments and just being cold and wet you know all of that that wish for ease and just to break just to rest all of that is from from working in those camps so would you say that that theme of disappearing would you say that it was an intentional parallel that you did for Heartbreaker and Stunt and the first um, the play that you did I think I just have something about people disappearing. I, it's like a thing that I maybe I've resolved it now that I wrote Heartbreaker, but um, it just fascinates me mm-hmm. that someone can be there and then be gone. Is it the mystery of it all? I, I, it, it could be that, mm-hmm. yeah, and just this the the kind of infinity of like human lives and possibilities in the world and how easy it would be to do yeah. you know, how easy it would be to vanish yeah. yeah do you think that in today's world with even with all the technology that we have would it still be as easy to get up and disappear mm, I know it's such a good question I mean I think that's part of why I said it in 1985 because it would it's so much easier to vanish then than it is now right, right? Yeah. Um, but I still think you could do it. Yeah. You just have to be obviously extra clever, like clever in a different way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think the idea of disappearing is selfish? Um, I mean, I guess given the root of that word, yes, but I can always find a way to reason it out. Like, even mm. when someone does something bad, and like Billie Jean, who's the center of this book, and part of why I wanted to write her was that she was so many things at once, you know? She held all of it. She held her her sorrow and her, like, magnetism, and, you know, and then her past and her present, where she's done incredible things and terrible things, you yeah. know? So... 
I think the choices that she makes, yeah, in a way they're selfish, but they're also self-preservationist mm-hmm. in a way that mm-hmm. I respect. Yeah. Okay. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Billie Jean, one of the questions I had was, Personally, for me, one of my favorite sayings is well-behaved women seldom make history. And I'm sure you can agree with that. And Billie Jean and Heartbreaker can kind of be considered such a woman as the rest of the community that she was in was unsettled by her. How does writing about women who have been deemed as bad behaving influence the conventional narratives that we naturally associate with them? Mm. Oh, I love that question. That's so juicy. <laughs> <laughs> um... I know for myself as a reader that a character becomes real to me once they're bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so Billy, you can tell that she's like this charismatic, loyal mother yeah. and a charismatic, loyal wife, right? Like she has the kind of rate, these reigning kind of supreme qualities. Yeah. But then she also has these other qualities, like she cheats, she lies, she murders, <laughs> she leaves. It changes the conventional narrative in the sense that the conventional narrative would ha- would star a much more noble, less faceted woman, I think. Yeah. I love that you said that about how as a reader, it gets more interesting for you when you start seeing the bad side of the protagonist. And even when I'm thinking back about the book, you know, how the ladies in the community, they always start the conversation with, you good, you good, you good. And when the dog is the one narrating the book, he's like, how about we start a conversation, you bad, just to, mm-hmm. so that we can see your flaw first mm-hmm. and see yeah. who you really are instead of putting up with facades and pretense and and things like that. So I like what you said about that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so much um, conformity, obviously, yeah. in yeah. this world, right? And I never use the word cult, but you can see that it's the remains of a cult. I only, you know, I plant big clues, like the way that the women rotate their puff sleeve dresses yeah. on the days of the week and how they style their hair and if you look at that question you good it's just such a dead end you can right. never answer that with any kind of truth right yeah that's true um so you know the book in a way is like the wolf pack versus the lone wolf you know and billy's really the lone wolf mm-hmm. and speaking of the cult You know, a lot of books who explore the cult culture often explain the reason they joined and why they left, as if to justify the negative undertones attached to cults. But in Heartbreaker, you don't explain the why. You simply tell the story of a community set in the backdrop of an old cult. What made you take that approach? I think I wanted to parachute the reader in, you know, which is how I felt in those tree planting camps, like where you're just kind of dropped into the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I find myself, I get annoyed when a story is commented on from the outside. Like Mm -hmm. when you can see it from the outside, I'd rather just be inside of it. And it's like declaring this is how this world is, Right. you know? So it's sort of like the difference between walking into an art gallery and looking at the art 
or walking into an art gallery and getting the audio tour while looking at the art. I wanted to skip the audio tour and leave the reader alone with the art. That's a great analogy. Another question that we had is a little bit more lighthearted. And it was the names in the story have magical feel to them. So there's Pony Darlene Fontaine, The Heavy, Rita Starr. Supernatural, Neon Dean, Sexteria, I like that one, uh, Gina, Gina Rollins, and that's the family's dog name. So what was the process in finding the names, and is was it as fun as uh, the names themselves actually sound? It was so much fun. <laughs> and I knew with this book, like the center of the book, the heart of the book is dark, it's sad. You know, so yeah. I knew that I, for myself and for the reader, I really wanted like these pleasing kind of redemptive qualities. I wanted some sparkle mm-hmm. and names give you, you know, such an um, insight into a character. And I wanted all of the women to have these double barreled names and I wanted the men to have the nicknames, which is obviously a huge thing in the book. Yeah. Sexeteria is a real man from the 90s. He used to work in the cafeteria <laughs> at my McGill residence. Oh, my wow. gosh. Yeah, even cute, cute with a hairnet on. <laughs> yeah. Sexeteria. He was very popular. Wow. <laughs> I bet. With a name like that. <laughs> but the other ones were just names I was... You know, I was like Pony was just a name I was dying to use. I always wanted to write a girl named Pony. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, the heavy came to me immediately. Same with Supernatural. You know, some of them just came to me right away, and others yeah. I just I played with more. In Heartbreaker, some of the memorable quotes are the positive sex declaration made by the young girls. For example. Lana wants Sexy Tara to push up the back of my skirt with his face. And in another instant, when he sees me in this, he's going to name his dick after me. And even Pony at one point says, step two, I blew him while he said my name over and over. And this kind of liberty is so rare and fun to read that it's almost empowering to read girls express a natural desire that way. Why was it important for you to write about the girl's sexual exploration in that way? Um, That's a great question. I think one of the big things that I was looking at in the book is is adolescence. Like, my husband feels like the book's really about puberty. It's about that moment at which you separate yourself, sometimes violently, at least recklessly, from your childhood. You know, and sex is such a huge part of that, right? It's, It's part of the storm inside all of your desires it's part of your status it's part of feeling like you matter it's part of feeling like you're bad part of feeling like you're good yeah you know and so they all experience it in this different kind of way and I wanted them to express a kind of agency even though where they live is completely oppressive like all of these girls this moment of agency is so brief Mm -hmm. because the moment they get pregnant there's no birth control there the moment they get pregnant they're going to be married yeah Mm -hmm. and if they aren't already married they'll be married off to some ancient widower and Mm -hmm. raising his children you know that's where the women go in this book and they go there so young Mm-hmm. And the place, the territory, uh, it, it functions through this this sinister industry, which is blood taking. 
you know, he's in his 50s, he's 55, and he's got these this kind of, like, immortal face. <laughs> and we were talking about aging and, and you know, and what happens to people as they age and, and some of the disappointments that they start to wear. You know, they become really visible over time. And my husband was saying, like, but it's not just time. Like, it's, it's, it's what's happened to them. Right. Either from the outside or from within, you know? And That's I just true. thought that was such a, it's, it was such a brilliant idea inside our conversation. Yeah. I was like, that's such a heavy thing to say. Like, that's such an observation that he would make because yeah. he, he's so noble, you mm-hmm. know, in a way. He's kind of the noble woman. <laughs> you know, this, like, just working thanklessly and loyal thanklessly. Yeah. You know, steadfast and true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I definitely agree agree with what you're saying and I can resonate with that because I've I've always put a lot of weight on time and it being very precious to me and I remember one time I was having a conversation with a friend cuz I was all bent out of shape about my quote unquote time and feeling like it was being wasted. And um, she said something to me that was really interesting. And basically what she was saying was that time's an illusion. And it's what, it's just a tool that we measure something with. Yeah. So what we do with that time and the gaps in between the time is, is what's important. And um, sometimes focusing too much on, you know, the, the minutes and the seconds and the days and the months. And you kind of lose the point of living Mm -hmm. and you're not really focusing on the living so yeah I love that and I and and like I'm sure you have moments where where you lose time where time Mm -hmm. shrinks or time expands you know so yeah I think that's a really I mean only a freelancer in a way can think that way and she is (laughs) (laughs) so you you got it right Like a shift worker. Yeah. Friend. It's more challenging. <laughs> Shout out to Amisi. She's an amazing graphic designer and she's constantly feeding my spiritual mind. So I love that you called that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I was relating. I also have a job, but when I'm when I'm writing and time is my own, I it, it can really expand for me. Yeah. You know, with this book particularly, the way that I wrote it was I would leave my house, my beautiful little family, and my job, and a friend would hand their keys over to an empty apartment or a cabin, and I would go there, and I would have like six days, ten days, and I would write. And in a day alone, a day alone was like two weeks of time Mm. for me. Wow. Because I didn't have... I didn't have any distractions. I didn't have anything pulling me out of the conversation with myself, which is what writing is, you know? And I would leave my phone in the car. That was a big thing, mm. too. I didn't have my phone, and I would I didn't have the Internet. Right. Wow. I feel like time has changed because of the Internet. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It gets consumed oh, way more sure. quickly. I, like, sure. speaking of vampiric right like yeah. I feel like the the internet steals a lot of time and thinking mm-hmm. that could go elsewhere yeah I agree with like that. a more meaningful elsewhere yeah mm-hmm. and I think one of our battles in today's world is 
challenging ourselves to steer our attention away from that or to choose to use that time on the internet to to produce something or to put our minds to something that's useful, you know, to learn yeah. something instead of just like, you know, spending three hours on YouTube watching, I don't know, cats, cat videos, or like <laughs> makeup tutorials, you know what I mean? But it's a conscious, it's a conscious decision that I know I have to learn to be like, mm-hmm. this is useless. I could pick up a book and read, or I could do something else to propel my future. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's challenging. It's, it's like it, it lets your brain go to neutral, mm-hmm. which yeah. is really scary, Yeah, actually. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I never thought of it that way. That's true. Yeah. Well, I always found, like, when I was writing and I would not have my phone and not have the internet, I'd go for these huge walks when I needed a break from, like, being inside, sitting in the hard chair. And my mind would be able to follow my thinking in a totally long form and different way that kind of reminded me actually of like Montreal in the 90s mm-hmm. you know pre-internet right. it was just a different quality of thinking yeah mm-hmm. and so that's when I thought okay I really need to watch the internet's like presence in my life yes. because yeah. it's interrupted how long I can carry and from that point like splice a thought like where I can actually go in my mind does that affect how you parent in terms of how I, I'm, you have two boys. Am I, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A 12 year old and a seven year old. That's um, the age of the video games mm-hmm. and the YouTube <laughs> and the iPads. We are pretty strict mm-hmm. um, here in our house and um, we promote books obviously my husband's a musician so we have a recording studio in the basement we have like 70 different instruments throughout our house so there's a lot that the boys um can do that's completely outside of the internet okay but that said um we don't want to banish it entirely because then it can get sort of fetishized it can become the thing that you want most you know Mm -hmm. right so it's still, frankly, we're, it's still kind of an advent. It's still like a new technology in terms of parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, so every household has their own set of rules. And yeah, yeah again, I would say we're on the pretty strict side. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, you have to be really careful because it's, we, we see with adults who have a certain level of discipline and responsibility and thinking and knew what the world was before iPhones and you see how addicted they are exactly right so for a kid exactly it's yeah it's it's a dangerous dangerous uh thing yeah I I I love I love your answer I think that that parenting style is it's something that I would if I ever had children is something that I would I would want to implement as well and I think um you know, you you being a writer and having many other hats and your husband being a musician, um, the kids have a lot of other things that they can they can do to edify their mind that it, that's just as entertaining, but it's actually edifying. Yeah. Um, and I find that a yeah. lot of other kids, sometimes parents use the internet and the TV as a babysitter. It can happen. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we don't, and we actually don't have television. Like, we don't have cable wow. or anything like that. 
I mean, we have Netflix. Like, we're not, you know, right. we're not, like, <laughs> like, off the grid. <laughs> you know, we have Netflix, and, and, you know, the kids have movie nights on the weekends. And, yeah. But it's, like, you know, it's pretty um, thought through, yeah. I would say. Mm-hmm. And the other big thing is... We want our kids to have, like, skills with their hands. Yeah. You know, so my eldest son just built a longboard, like a skateboard wow. that he designed, and he painted it. He goes to a woodworking studio every week. Wow. You know? Like, they, we, we're just, and, and he's really into cooking, and, you know, we wow. just want to make sure, and that's him. That's him telling us who he <laughs> yes. is and, and what he wants to pursue. So, happily, that's where he's landed, you know? And our youngest son's, like, a big reader and drawer and... And again, not to say that the internet isn't like Las Vegas for them, right? Yeah. Town or something. It's like glittery and exciting, right? <laughs> it's just about making sure that it's like measured out and that you know what they're doing. Yeah. You can't like leave your kids with the internet. Yeah. 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 It's like letting them walk alleyways at night. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good way to put it. <laughs> So you mentioned that your husband's a musician and we see that music is very prevalent along the story in Heartbreaker. So if you could pick three songs as the soundtrack for the book, what would they be? Oh, oh my goodness. Whoa. <laughs> you would have, I know, Love Hurts. It's a good song. Billie Jean. Mm-hmm. When doves cry. Ooh. Oh, that's a good. So fitting. <laughs> so fitting. Yes, I see it. I see it. Are you dancing a little bit? Like just a tiny bit. You know, swing. <laughs> We're swinging a little bit here. Yeah. Me and Julian and I was saying, I think for me, one of the best way I could describe the book in two short words would be darkly whimsical, and the songs that you picked are kind of kind of embody that yeah. too oh yeah yeah so i love the the combination mm. here that's good i like that yeah thank yeah. you yeah. i had another friend describe it as the most scorpio novel she'd ever read <laughs> are you a scorpio yeah okay. <laughs> that's interesting so switching gears you have a fashion line called horses outler am i pronouncing that Atelier. 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 Okay. Mm. Is that French? I I know it's French, but I I think they they say it in English too, no? I've not. Maybe. Well, French word for workshop, right? Atelier? Yeah. Do you speak French? I speak like enough French. Like I speak enough French to be conversational. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Should I ask it? But I don't know that I could do an entire interview in French. How did you come up? How did that come about? And what are the, like, how do those different hats influence the way that you write? Um, well, horses, it's been uh, nearly, it'll be seven years this coming spring. Mm-hmm. And we were, my closest friend and I were walking through Parkdale, which is like this very, um, kind of beautiful, dilapidated neighborhood in Toronto, mm-hmm. kind of glorious ruin. Walking under a bridge, pushing our new babies, 
talking about our love of style, style is a form of autobiography, fashion is a form of autobiography, Mm -hmm. and feeling like we couldn't quite find the things that we wanted, and in a really romantic, probably underslept moment, came up with this idea of doing our own thing, came up with the name, all within, like, minutes, and then the crazy part is that we did it, so... I guess within a year, we were in Vogue magazine. Wow. And then we were selling clothes in Japan and all over the U.S. and here in Canada. And then about two years ago, we decided that the model, our model, our business model was too complex for what we wanted Mm -hmm. in our lives. And so we decided to just sell in our shop, which is here in Toronto, and online. And now we have a lot more autonomy. Mm -hmm. Um, We're free from that kind of corporate commercial hellscape of the fashion calendar. We still make everything here in Toronto. Our fabrics are all natural fibers from Europe. And, you know, it's, it's really close to, it remains very true to our values. Right. Um, And the, name horses really was first inspired by the patty smith record but also the animal you know beauty velocity wildness and we found so many women were struck by that name Uh and now seven years in so many of those women are wearing our clothes and it totally feels like a kind of sistership yeah um so definitely the thought of dressing and dressing my characters is like a huge and kind of central and like delicious task yeah. for me mm-hmm. I love it I, I um, it's sort of like the naming you know it's so specific to who they are I want it to be so singular and original to the character and I want to be soft and graceful about it I never want to be ironic you know, like my favorite filmmakers like Sofia Coppola or Wes Anderson or mm-hmm. Almodovar, you know, there's so much like grace and tenderness around how their films are peopled and what the people are wearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I always try to pull that into my fiction and before that my plays. Nice. nice. Very interesting. Speaking of you having a fashion line and you writing novels, you're also a wife and a mother. How do you find time or how do you balance all your passions and talents with motherhood and family? Mm. Um, I mean, I do the best that I can. Um, our kids now have more autonomy because they're older and they're, they're more independent. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is a real shift in a young family. I'm really supported by my husband. Like, he's really got my back. He's in my corner. You know, all the fight terminology is right Mm -hmm. when you're, like, robbing time from your life. Mm -hmm. He understands. He's always understood what it means when I have a book in me and I need to write it. You know, it's like an obsession. It's a consumption. And, and makes sure I have the space to do that. And honestly, I feel like 
for kids having parents who are like consumed by their passions not in a dangerous way but for kids to see parents who can concentrate in that way and are following the thing that they love most to do I feel like it's a good example so and that's not to say that you know it's also like tiring and sometimes you're like bone tired you know but but I do think that um like your life is your days it's composed of your days your days are composed of your hours like it has to matter you know and I feel like having kids all of a sudden the way you look at time like what we were talking about before the way that it's measured out it has to matter Mm -hmm. because you're leaving them for a little while to do this thing so it has to matter Oh, that's beautifully said. You speak just as beautifully as you write. <laughs> uh, well, you guys are asking such good questions. I totally feel like I'm, where are you guys? Are you here in Toronto? Are yeah. You in Toronto? Yeah, we're in Toronto. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. I know this is such a snowy night conversation. Like, it it's is. Right. Snowing outside. It's like the weather. Everything cooperated. I feel like conversation. I know. It feels like you're like one of our friends, and we're just having like a group yeah. conference, <laughs> just chit chatting. Yeah, yeah trying nice. to unravel the mysteries of time. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we actually have a question from our listeners, and oh. um, one of the questions comes from Kitty Reads. And she asked, what inspires you to write and keep with it? Ooh, it's a, it's a huge and mysterious question. But I know for me that a book, um, when a book comes, it's like inarguable. Like I have to write it. And it generally starts from a couple of things. One is an image And one is something inside myself that I can't quite settle, some kind of argument. And writing for me is a way, really it's a way to fix things. Mm -hmm. Um, And then because it's an obsession for me, discipline and sticking with it and just putting in the time, like the hours, the thousands of hours of being in the chair, I'm game. I love it. I love being devotional. I love being like a monk for a project. <laughs> Good. So what what authors would you say influence you, and what are your favorite books? Ooh. Um, one author that I've been reading a lot lately who I adore is an American writer named Samantha Hunt. She's just, she's such a clean and funny writer. Like, her sentences, you can see the effort... Um, the hours that she's put in, but there's no like great flourish or showing off, like no pyrotechnics. Uh, yeah. And her stories are super strange and funny, which is to me how life feels like all the time. So Samantha Hunt, I adore. Um, and I feel like I learned a lot from reading Elena Ferrante too. Just the kind of the way that on each page she would plant something that would make you turn it. Mm. And I was like, yeah, that's how a book should function. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. It should have that kind of engine. Um, and then, yeah, I have this whole bookshelf in my studio that I'm looking at right now, and it has all of my heroes on it. 
Um, I love Sheila Hetty. I think she's one of the foremost philosophers. <laughs> yeah. <of our> time. <laughs> we reviewed a book uh, on this show too. I love that you called her a philosopher. We did too. Yeah. <laughs> she's like she's the philosopher queen. She is. She's a philosopher. You know? um, Virginia Woolf, uh, Miranda yeah. July, Barbara Gowdy, Joan Didion. Uh, you can see like Laurie Moore. Like I need an element of funny. Mm-hmm. I really do, and I need a little bit of strange, and then I need a lot of craft, but I need it done quietly. You know, mm-hmm. I don't like clotted, sentimental sentences. I like fast ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What well, would you say the is women, my, my feminist enterprise, when I look at that shelf, it's like all women. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, with all of that that you have going on, what's next for you? just starting to think of the next book really so I have, yeah I have this notebook that I'm carrying around and I'm not going to push it because that never works for me it never has in the past I'm stubborn I wait for the right thing and then when it starts it's undeniable mm-hmm. so I'm just starting to think through that and then I've got more like events and touring and stuff with Heartbreaker which has been frankly like a real privilege it's been it's been really beautiful it's like nerve-wracking you feel like your soul is like crossing like an eight-lane highway (laughs) but then you get to have conversations like this which are just you know they they're it's it's very special these kinds of conversations so thank you yeah it really was thank you for coming on the show and just sharing your wealth of knowledge with us and i'm really pleased and i'm happy that uh, we had that conversation it was definitely cool me too yeah, I'll think about this. Whenever I check a clock or a watch, I'll think about you guys. <laughs> How the numbers don't matter. <laughs> we cannot wait to see what you have going on, and maybe we can even have you back when that book comes out. I would love that. This was such a pleasure.